Hey, this is Dan Quiggle with episode 36 of Garage to Goliath, Leaders Building Legacies podcast. So before we get started with our guest, Richard Carr, I want you to know two things. First, my team and I just released a new leadership ebook about CEO disease. We're starting to release more and more tools for you to help you on your leadership journey. I want to be a partner with you and a resource for you. So I want to give you my new ebook as a gift. Just go to quigglegroup.com forward slash CEO disease to help get your free copy. That's quigglegroup, Q-U-I-G-G-L-E, group.com forward slash CEO disease. Also, some of you may be listening to this episode in your car on a walk. If you need a recap of this episode, check out the show notes at quigglegroup.com forward slash 036. You can find any link we mentioned, more about my guest, Richard Carr, more about my work, etc. at quigglegroup.com forward slash 036. All right, let's get started. Well, I think for me, I'm a very confident leader. I'm an optimist. I, you know, I'm a glass half full guy. And I generally see the best in people and I see the best in situations. I think it really develops loyalty and trust in those that work for me, but it can also sometimes be a big liability. So imagine getting to speak around the world, meeting the most successful, positive leaders, then getting to choose from that group That's what my show is about, learning from the best, how to be your best, so that we can challenge ourselves to lead with purpose, impacting lives and communities. Hi, I'm Dan Quiggle, and welcome to the Garage to Goliath Leaders Building Legacies podcast, where we learn, lead, and leave a lasting legacy. So I'm particularly excited to introduce you, my listeners, to a rock star. In my opinion, an unsung hero, a real gentleman, a great leader, Richard Carr. So Richard has made a life of being a leader in training, mentoring, and empowering other leaders. As a graduate of the United States Military Academy at West Point, Richard served our country for six years as an infantry officer in the Army. He received several medals for valor for exemplary leadership as a company commander during the Tet Offensive of 1968 in Vietnam. After his service in the Army, Richard joined his family's company, Car Paper Company. He then purchased a manufacturing company focused on corrugated boxes and point-of-purchase displays, Sentinel Container. As the CEO of Sentinel Container, he grew that business exponentially and was an acknowledged industry leader and innovator and grew the company from eight employees and $500,000 in sales to 90 employees and 15 million in sales. Then started another company, Engineered Foam. While the CEO of Sentinel Container, Richard earned an MBA from Pepperdine and then found Vistage, where he started his 38-year love affair with the Vistage learning and development model. His experience as a member was so powerful that he went on to leave his role as CEO of Sentinel Container and become a Vistage chair, leading groups from 92 to 98, then CEO of Vistage from 98 to 2005. Let me me just clarify that for my listeners. So he went from a member to a chair to literally CEO of Vistage International. Under his leadership, Vistage had a compounded growth rate of 15% per year, growing from 4,000 members to over 10,000. Following his post as CEO, Richard became vice chairman of the board and executive vice president, and today he's still, still in love with the idea and practice of Vistage and is a chairperson of three groups and one inside group. He served his country. He's been serving fellow leaders as a Vistage chair. Richard, thank you for being here and talking with my listeners. I really appreciate your time. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks. 
So I want to I want to start with this. So because I think this has shaped you as a leader, and, and you know it's how you've coached other leaders through your leadership journey. While you were in the army, you were stationed in Germany. You were assigned as aide de camp to General Frank Mildred, commanding general of the Seventh Corps. Will you tell us leadership lessons that you learned from General Mildred? Sure. Um, there were two or three in particular. Um, one that has impacted me in every job I've had since then was his practice of spending two to three days per, per week in the field with leaders and or remote operations. Um, it was his belief that, that his highest and best use was in the field understanding what's going on with the people who were really doing the work and that he had a whole staff in the headquarters that did staff work and that, by and large, he, he, he was serving the country and serving his role best by being a field guy. So literally two to three days a week? Two to three days a week. And, uh, and there were some aspects of that that I thought were, were, were fascinating, too, in that, by and large, he didn't want me. I'm, I'm the one that made the arrangements for all those trips and went with him and took notes on things and, and brought them back to the headquarters for, for action. But he did not want me to tell people he was coming because, by and large, what he wanted to do was to see how they do what they do without advance warning. And, and uh, he was very clear about his intent to give positive feedback where it was warranted, developmental feedback where it was warranted, and he was absolutely prepared to take disciplinary action when that was warranted as well. So how have you practiced that lesson in your own business or leadership role? Well, um, what, I, what I saw there was that, that General Mildren wasn't out there to preach to people. He was out there to listen to his field leaders and, uh, and understand what they had to say. He wanted to know what their issues were. He wanted to know what they wanted him to hear. And he wanted uh, to know what help they needed that they were not getting. And all of those things um, I have incorporated into uh, kind of what I've done ever since. So as a Vistage Chair, you get to coach others. So how do you get them to understand that same leadership lesson that you learned from the general? Well, um, you know, specifically, when I took over as CEO of Vistage, that um, was a company in transition. It had just been sold from its original owner to, you know, what you would now think of as a private equity group. And there was a fair amount of, of, of restlessness and uh, um, questionab- questionable trust within all of the field operations. So I spent literally... Um, time every week going around visiting uh, groups, you know, individual Vistage groups and chair groups and listening and asking questions. And I, all of that were just pages I had taken from what I had learned from General Mildred. So, you know, it's interesting because so somebody's running a company and they have multiple locations. Um, for example, I have a title company in Florida, and and one of the things that I try to practice is I kind of drop in unannounced also because, you know, when, when they know you're coming, what are they going to do? They're going to clean up. They're going to get everything, all the papers. But you want to see them kind of in their day-to-day form. And so – but so many leaders are so busy. And so how do you convince them that that's the right thing to do because, you know, they, they, they probably think they're too busy to go out and spend that kind of time? Well, 
it's just you know it's one of these kind of things that that um, um, you know obviously you can you know you can you can help people try to see the value in things and and I just tell stories about things that have happened in my experience uh, that hopefully get through to them about the value of doing this but what I'm really in what I'm really uh, believing as much as anything is that the people in the field uh, really want to be heard. They want to feel like they matter. They want to feel like what they have to say and what their concerns are matter. And so, um, you know, I was not only, you know, not only did I practice that, but I feel like one of the absolute crucial parts of that is when you hear things from people in the field, you need to take notes on that and you need to make sure you get back to to people so that they know that they that they weren't just that you weren't just patronizing them to listen to them but that you actually heard them even if it's not possible that you can take action on what they're concerned about the fact that you get back to them and give them some feedback about what you learned creates a a trust level between the you know the constant issue of of people like headquarters doesn't really care about what we do um so I love that because I think, I mean, it does solidify, hey, listen, we not only heard you, but we're actually, you know, we care about it and it matters. Um, can you share maybe one other impactful leadership lesson you learned in the military? Well, um, I think maybe the most impactful thing is is this whole concept that planning is essential to any business or operation. And yet, you know, the, the way I would say it uh, most graphically is that when the bullets start to fly – Chaos uh, just requires improvisation with any prior plans, and you know it doesn't mean that planning was you know you need to have a have a plan for what you expect to accomplish, but that you are going to have to improvise along the way, uh, just based on things that happen, and that you know in the heat of the action, uh, another aspect of this is is that leaders oftentimes do not have the time to explain themselves so that that a leader must realize that that they have that they have to have a developed trust level in order for you to have success successful um, execution yeah and in business thing you know a lot of things can change but you do have to have that initial plan the direction that they're heading and when I speak, I get to talk about that a lot, how you've got to not only set the goal, but show everyone around them their role in it, what they get out of it, and, and kind of move down the track. But things are going to change. We're spinning really fast on a dangerous planet. And, um, you know, when bullets start flying, sometimes literally, I mean, you know, you, you just have to be able to react and, and, and head down hopefully the right course. So I imagine that you learn a lot of great leadership skills, you know, being in the military, but also – that make veterans extremely valuable in the civilian world. Do you have any advice for veterans on how they can better communicate how their military experience translates into value into the civilian business world? Well, I want to separate my 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 points about that in two ways, um, into into two categories, because I think um, uh, you know for blue collar workers uh, specifically. Business people want to, they want to hire people who listen to instructions, follow orders, execute plans, and are respectful and are trustworthy. And these are all traits that are taught in the military. So, you know, what I would say to people who are 
getting out, having been an, an, an enlisted person, and they're looking for any kind of category of what you would think of as a blue-collar job, have stories that describe how you listened to instructions, how you followed orders, how you executed a plan, how you were respectful, how you were trustworthy, because in those stories, uh, it can be hugely impactful in an interview and more impactful once you get on the job. I think that's fantastic advice. So now what about the officer level, that, that different level? So for, for, for you know, so what I would categorize as white-collar workers are typically officers that are getting out, and, and there's really an increasing number of businesses who respect the initiative, the resourcefulness, the planning and organizing skills, and just the general leadership training that, that the officers in the military have received. So um, I, I say to, to those people that they need to be prepared to tell stories that exemplify how you executed and or led projects or teams, um, and, you know, and, and obviously uh, need to to in some way exemplify the notion that you're that you're quick on your feet and you and you're able to adopt to to things and that those kinds of of practices were all things that you learned in the military and that you you're excited to bring those to the business world. And can we talk about that interview process for a second? I mean, is it something that you own during that process? I mean, you know, you you go after and use that as an asset? Yes, absolutely. I th- I think that I, and it's and it's a it's a delicate thing, you know. You have to use judgment because not every interviewer has the same skill level. But to, to the extent that's possible, you look for for windows to to and 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 I and I guess I would also say that as a veteran, wherever you're going to interview, you have to have done your homework. You have to have you need to have gone on to the to whatever resources you have access to, um, LinkedIn, people's companies' websites, uh, whatever other resources you have to, to learn about what that company does, what they're interested in, what they're looking for, uh, and even to the extent that if possible, you might even have found somebody else that you know that works there or, you know, a friend of a friend kind of a thing so that you can feel like you are somewhat knowledgeable about that company before you ever walk in the door. No, I think that's great. I think that's great advice. And and by the way, for my listeners, a woman who works with me, Megan, her husband is a veteran, and he recommends this book, Tribe by Sebastian Younger, as a book to help bridge the gap between those who have been in the military and civilians. So it might be a good book to, you know, for business leaders to pick up and help bridge that uh, gap between uh, those two perspectives. Huh. So, I have not read that book, but yeah, it sound, I, I know who Sebastian is, and he's written some good books. So, yeah, so I, I think I think that that's you know we're always looking for more information, right? We always want to be lifelong learners. So any yep. chance we can yep. kind of get a head start on anyone else or any other opportunity, might as well take advantage of it. So what what was it like for you coming from the military into the family business? What was the trans that transition like? Well, for me personally. Um, it was not a difficult transition because um, I had grown up working in my dad's business, and uh, and so I really had been connected to that uh, almost since you know, from when I was five years old, I was sweeping the floor. So, uh, and and all the way through school, I worked on vacations and summers and so on. So I really understood the business uh, pretty well. So it was not a tough transition for me. 
quite honestly, the toughest transition was that I had been very successful in the military and did I, you know, and I had gotten advanced promotions and it was very tough for me to make the decision to leave because uh, I really had a bright future in the military, but I just felt that at the particular time that I was making my decisions, they were spitting on uniforms and, and the military was were kind of considered as second-class citizens due to the whole Vietnam War thing. So um, that kind of tipped the scale for me to get out. But but uh, the actual uh, the actual transition to my particular family business was not difficult. So first of all, there's no spitting from any for me or any of my listeners. Let me tell you, a deep appreciation for you and all the veterans out there who keep us safe and free and uh, keep this country as great as it is. And I, I will just say this. I think that it's such an interesting dynamic because, okay, so you talk about sweeping floors and then you come into the company. So how did that work? I mean, what position did you come into? And then how did the other employees look at that transition? Um, I came in as a salesperson. Um, and... Uh, and I think uh, my dad was always one of these people that believed that, uh, you know, that that the son of the boss had to to do more than what was asked of anybody else, uh, because there would be more expected of that person. So I came in understanding that that uh, um, I, I I just had to, you know, I had to perform at a high level, and and I did so. Um, it was uh, it was just not difficult for me. So then, so then I'm curious because when you were CEO of Sentinel Container, where did the idea come from to start the complementary business, Engineered Foam? Well, um, that came from a relationship that I had developed with another box maker in Philadelphia who had a similar business, and uh, and and he and I became good friends and. Uh, and and he had this kind of proprietary process that uh, that he had started in Philadelphia, um, and uh, and in essence, uh, we just uh, I mean uh, it, it was it was kind of a was it was kind of one of those um, uh, serendipitous things that I just was able to make this relationship and didn't really even cost me any money in terms of a license fee or anything. But uh, but I did in a, in effect get all of that I needed to understand about the equipment that I had to buy and all that sort of thing and and it just kind of fit in. I I was in in Sentinel, you know, I became known in our trade association as a as an innovator in that the the the, uh, the mainstream of the box business is a very very down and dirty competitive business. And I real quickly understood that I was not going to be able to grow the business in the mainstream uh, and be profitable. Um, and so I, I, I felt like I had to d- develop niches. And so I, my first niche that I really spent the first few years on was the net niche of, of just, in effect, getting things safely from point A to point B, specifically catering to um, medical instrument companies, electronics companies, um, high-value military kinds of products, et cetera, that were either sensitive to dropped dropped tests or sensitive to to being dropped and broken or vibrated and so on. And so we developed packaging to do that. And so this engineered foam and its 
particular um, kinds of proprietary things were specifically effective in helping me build that that side of the business. So you know what I love about that story is that, you know, so often in business we get blinders on and we kind of focus on our business, our people, and and you befriend somebody within your industry and you don't see each other as a threat, you know, and, and then next thing you know, you're learning and maybe even doing business together. And, you know, those relationships are so powerful, aren't they? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, and so, there, and, and it, it, it's kind of an, another aspect of this is that, that I hadn't even thought about until just right now is that, um, there were a lot of there are a lot of people in that industry who would be afraid to let anybody tour their factory for fear that somebody was going to learn something and uh and I always felt the opposite about that because I felt that that first of all if I let somebody into my factory they would let me into their factory and and I always felt that there was nothing I was doing that 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 they could actually replicate uh, at least on a timely basis, or even if they did, I would be so far ahead of them that it didn't make any difference. So, I was also very—I was always very welcoming uh, to other folks. Yeah, I just think that's a great trait to have, and that you—you you learn from each other. You know, we're—we're we're, we're constantly fighting. Sometimes we need to be uniting and seeing how we can all kind of push the market. You know, exactly better and to be better, more efficient, everything. So. From a leadership perspective, though, that probably created a little bit of a challenge because now how did you lead both teams and both companies? Well, um, first of all, I, um, you know, I was, was just a person who was, was uh, good at hiring good people. I was also good, reasonably um, well, I mean, some of this quite honestly came from from what I learned in Vistage or what was then called tech uh just this whole you know that just this whole concept that any ordinary person can do something themselves it takes somebody who is a little bit extraordinary or, or at least uh out of the ordinary to get other people to do things in a manner that you want them to do them so at a pretty early place I was good at delegating and and I was always kind of out in front of of the business, just looking for what the next good idea was, uh, the next concept that we could that that we could take advantage of that would again cause us to be differentiated from just the run of the mill uh, producer. And and so uh, I, I hired a guy um, actually that came from Philadelphia. Uh, not not that hadn't been part of this business, but was a person that that my friend that had this type of business in Philadelphia felt would be a good fit, and and brought him out to run the business, and uh, and then I had some similarly uh, some people that I had chosen myself in my box business, so I had a pretty good team of people that worked for me in spite of the fact that my business was fairly small. So you know what I I, I appreciate is that. When I speak, I talk about you know making sure. Like I'll say, do you want to be an owner? Do you want to be a manager to these to these these leaders of these companies? Because there's a difference, right? And you you need the right people around you, but then you need to empower them. And I talk about how real power, and I'm not talking about power, power. I'm talking about the power of you know getting motivating people is not making the decision; it's allowing others to make the decision for you. And so it sounds like you were very good at that, and and that made a difference in your growth. Well, there was a there was something that happened 
fairly early on, too, that was hugely impactful for me, and that was that um, I realized um, within a couple of years after I had purchased Sentinel Container and started building it, that as wonderful as my education had been in the, at West Point and with the stuff that I had learned in the military, that I was not prepared for all of the different um, disciplines uh, in running a business as I needed to be. And so I, I started taking a few courses from, from UCLA at their extension downtown L.A., and I saw an ad in the paper one day. Pepperdine was had announced this executive MBA program uh, called the PKE program, President and Key Exec MBA program. And uh, so I called and was interviewed and, and was selected. Uh, it was I was actually in the second class they had, and and it was hugely impactful me to me in two ways. Uh, one was um, it was a joint venture between what we now know as Vistage, what was then called Tech, and Pepperdine, and as such, um, you know, had a had a, a peer group model in their in their groups, very similar to what a Vistage group is like today, and 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 it was my, and it was an abs it absolutely blew me away in terms of the concept of of peer learning, and and being in a peer group in a learning environment. Uh, and it began, uh, you know, my relationship with with tech and Vistage that's been existed ever since then. And the second is is that I wrote a th- I had to write a thesis for my MBA, and I wrote my thesis on the viability of a of a computer driven cost price estimating system as compared to a historic. Uh, estimating system in the box business that, that from my perspective, didn't bear very much um, validity to reality. And, uh, and it totally revolutionized how I went about what I did. And it was right when, when many computers were, were introduced and I, you know, used a Wang computer um, and, and, and introduced a, a software system in our estimating process that really, really catapulted our growth rate. Well, you can tell. I mean, just look at the results because you led that company on a pretty aggressive growth path. I mean, from $500,000 in sales to $15 million. So if you can distill it down, what was your strategy as a leader through that process? Well, it was, um, first of all, that, uh, you know, in, in my estimation, every business is a people business. And, uh, and I was really um, pretty fastidious about, you know, being committed to a good sales force, uh, a good production crew, uh, good people in the internal operation of the business, and that was at Sentinel Container. And then later on, um, I, you know, I I was trying to get the same thing with engineered foam. I, I was not as good at that because Quite honestly, the guy that I hired uh, to run that from the East Coast was really not as good as advertised. And uh, uh, you know, one of your other questions that you had out here was was you know what's what's a place that I didn't feel like I led well, and it was that particular case. There was kind of a dichotomy between how well Sentinel was run and how well Engineered Foam was run. But but at any rate, 
you know, I worked, I really, I worked at, at, uh, at having good people and then being an innovator. Um, I started out with, with the whole idea of, of creating a niche of selling customers that, that had products that required sensitive handling. And then I developed a niche a little bit later uh, in the, in the area of, of uh, displays and things that help customers or uh, sell their products. And, and but those two niches were kind of what I hung my hat on and invested in equipment to, to produce and, uh, and, and really were kind of my secret to success. So that was the strategy. So how did you invest in and empower the others around you to make this happen? I mean, you talk about having those people. How did they feel invested in? Like, how did you, how did you go through that process? Well, um, first of all, um, they, you know, I had, I, 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 I had, I spent a lot of time with, with the people who reported directly to me. And, uh, and I, and I really didn't have a, what, what we would think of today as as a comprehensive training system, but I did I did spend a lot of time really de- developing and training people, and uh, um, and that's I suppose the biggest thing I did. Um, the probably probably the other is is that um, I I guess in a small business. Uh, you know, I still believe that 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 a lot of the entrepreneurs' uh, success is based on leading by example, being willing to do any job that there is to do. And so, you know, I spent time scheduling the plant. I had spent time doing ride-alongs with my, you know, lesson from General Miller, and I did ride-alongs with my salespeople. I did ride-alongs with my truck drivers. I did. Uh, you know, I went out and visited uh, vendors um, and uh, service-related people, you know, bankers, other kinds of people, to just be sure that I was well-connected and um, and that we were doing things in a way that, that allowed us to, to kind of outperform others in our business. So it and in those ride-alongs, probably great conversations about what's working, what's not working, where their frustrations are, all those things. Yep, yep. You want to want to know what's working for them, kind of what they're you know what what they're struggling with. Uh, I want to get a feel for how they how they show up in front of customers. That that, that those ended up to be great training exercises, um, and uh, it, it was you know and and truck drivers. I mean, who they they would say you know mostly they couldn't believe that the owner of the company would go out and ride with him for a day. I thought it was interesting that I was just in a, in a Vistage event and, um, in Northern California, and it was funny because they were expanding. And, and so his office was being demolished as they were making way for this new space. And so he had his, his office was in this cubicle out in the middle of everything. And he said, you know, at first it was kind of uncomfortable, he thought, for everybody. But then they almost forgot he was there and they would start talking to each other. He said, I, I got to learn more about that company in those you know, four, four to six weeks that he was out there than he ever did back behind those walls with those, that, do, that door shut. So you, you, we do have to listen and kind of get, keep our finger on the pulse of what's going on. So you, you had mentioned earlier a mistake that you had made. And you know, what mistakes did you make? And, and you talked about that one employee maybe not having the right person. How did you deal with that? Like, how did you get rid of that person, or did you, or did you do it in time? 
Well, um, the uh, you know what it, when I when I this is all kind of Monday morning quarterback stuff. But what I realized later on was that I tolerated <clears throat> a lot of mediocrity from from the engineered foam thing, and uh, and it was specifically the leader I had brought because that was I started that from ground zero, um, and we actually ended up to be reasonably profitable and the and the business was reasonably successful but but the guy that was that I had brought out um really I I just had not a, done a, an as an effective job as I would now do myself uh in vetting the guy and he, and I just you know I guess maybe I felt bad about the fact I'd moved him from Philadelphia I can't even tell you exactly what was going through my mind but uh, but essentially, I tolerated him for about two or three years longer than I should have. Yeah, sometimes when we know the end result, we got to just make that. We got to make. Oh, it I, you know, I mean, I I can't tell you the number of people that, or situations now that that uh, I have been exposed to that when somebody's terminated, they, you know, I think the most common thing you hear, boy, I can't imagine that I waited so long to do this. Yeah, and and we make every excuse to to not do it because it's painful, and we have invested time there. But the reality is, it's I hate to use this analogy, but it's true. It's like a cancer eating away at a body, and until it's cut out, it will continue to kill you, kill your organization, kill the culture, everything around it. So, at least you know, and I'm sure you've probably changed your ways since then, or at least advised differently based on that. So, you know, really quick, what was the catalyst to leave your company and become a Vistage Chair in 1992? I mean, that's a huge decision. Well. Uh, I mean, it's it, it, the way I tell the story is is that my business had gotten too big to be small and too small to be big. Um, at, at I had gotten to a certain place where all the growth that I envisioned required several millions of dollars of investment, and uh, and I'd built the business 100 percent from all, from my own capital and my own resources. And uh, and I just didn't feel like I could, um, you know. I, I I guess I in in some ways, um, I, I guess I I as I have sometimes said to people that I kind of chickened out, uh, and that I just felt that that uh, it was too big a risk for my family and and uh, and so on. So I and I had this guy who'd been who'd been who'd been trying to buy my business for the last four or five years, and finally I said yes. And are you glad you made that decision? Well, uh, that's an, one of those funny kinds of... I'm not the kind of person that, that tries to second-guess something and say, you know, gosh, if I had done this, this would have happened. If I'd have stayed in the military, I'd have been a general. If I had, if I had just gutted it out and and uh, uh, been willing to mortgage my house and, and do all the other things that I did, I, you know that I've been more successful in that way. But I don't look at it that way. I feel like it's kind of corny, but, you know, you know, God has a plan and, and, uh, and I'm part of it. And, um, and I just sort of feel like, like, uh, everything happens for a reason. So, uh, and I've had, and, and I've had a wonderful, wonderful life with Vistage. And, uh, so I don't, I no. the answer is I don't really begrudge that. No, and I can't even imagine. I mean, look at the impact you have on so many people's lives on a regular basis. And and during that six-year period, you know, because you, now, now you're a chair, what, what leadership tactics, strategies did you use to get your Vistage members real results in their companies? Because, I mean, that's where 
the rubber hits the road, right? I mean, that's you, you can really make an impact, especially kind of being that outside uh, vantage point, you know, that as people are kind of in the weeds and you get to kind of come in and talk to them about that. So what, you know, what did you use? What, what strategies? Well, um, to me, the, 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 the power of, of Vistage um, is, is really in, in the meeting itself um, and, and, the, and what members can learn from each other. Um, I mean, I, I had so many rich stories that, of things that happened. Um, you, you know, one, one was the fact very early in my time as a member was a, a, a person who came to the group with, you know, a real problem that was not that different than the problem that I had in my business in terms of what they were willing to invest. But in his case, he did a sale leaseback on his facility that gave him the capital to go on and build his business. But over the course of two or three meetings, the, the group helped him get to the place that he was really willing to do that. And it, that was hugely impactful to me. Um, and another was, was a chain of restaurants, uh, 30 some odd restaurants and, uh, and all of a sudden, uh, the, there was a downturn in the economy, and also it right it, that kind of coincided, or was just after when this person had bought out a partner, and the resulting thing of 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 him having taken on debt to buy out his partner, and the fact that there was a downturn in the economy, his business has started hemorrhaging huge amounts of capital, or huge amounts of profits, and. Uh, and and the owner, the member of the owner was paralyzed, and the Vistage group, group basically walked him through bringing in a turnaround person, who who helped him close twelve restaurants and saved the business, save you know saved his business life. Um, and another was uh, was my own exit from an investment um, in a business that, that that I mentioned a little bit later too in terms of. Kind of where did I, you know, what just kind of what mistakes that I've made along the way, but it was this uh, CEO disease, if you will. I got to thinking that I was really good, and somebody approached me about investing in a business that I knew nothing about. It actually made leather goods for the motorcycle industry, um, and I went to the bank and borrowed a bunch of money and and invested in that business. And uh, the group really helped me one year later to understand that that business was just not ever going to make it. And so really helped me walk away, uh, you know, at the time. I mean, this was in the mid-70s. Um, you know, I, it, it cost me $60,000, but in $60,000 of my own after-tax money was a lot of money. And, um, and it was just a huge, it, it was a huge thing. And I'm not so sure that I would have been willing to walk away at the time I did, if I had stayed, it would have cost me a lot more. See, um, but that, that, stories, stories like that, uh, that I have been able to take to my own members in terms of just getting them to be willing to bring raw kinds of things to their group um, have, have uh, been hugely impactful. And that's what I guess I love about Vistage is there's power in peers. And, you know, Adam Smith calls it the impartial spectator 
right? Where you don't have a vested interest per se, but you want, you know, you have a shared vision and you're success oriented so you can kind of help them along. And even the way Vistage problem solves, you know, you state the problem, somebody repeats it, they ask you questions, you know, for 15, 20 minutes. And then at the end, they all give you their solution to your problem. Then you have to choose a solution that you're going to go with. And they assign somebody to hold you accountable by when it's going to get done. I mean, just as a leader, most CEOs, most leaders don't have that pressure. They just kind of do the things that they want to do. But when you add that added value, you know, it really makes a difference. So, and and by the way, you just brought up three stories. You probably have 300 based on I your do. experience. I, I mean, do. just- I do. And, and then yeah. that even becomes part of, of the value. So- you know, I guess I'm fascinated with – so then you become CEO of Vistage and, and the organization grows from 4,000 members to 10,000 members in just four years. So from a leading people perspective, you know, practically, how did you make that happen? Um, well, first of all, um, the company had had momentum um, and and – and it went through a kind of a trying period at about the time that I took my my job, just because the ownership had changed, and uh, and there was a whole lot of of distrust and um, and and uh, and questioning that was going on in the field. And I'd say probably my my first, maybe even my most impactful thing there was doing what I said I did earlier of going out and spending time listening to chairs and listening to groups and understanding what was working and what was not working and to understand you know how how I could communicate the fact that that everything is 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 healthy in the headquarters and we're all united in the same shared vision of you know helping helping leaders and company owners Make better decisions, get better results, be better leaders, um, and and uh, and so just basically calming the storm, and then making sure that that our recru- chair recruitment process, our chair training processes, and our and our processes of supporting uh, members and chairs and uh, and, and and all of the. You know our licensees around the world, et cetera. Um, we're all in good order. So, Richard, though you you talk about going out, but I mean, come on, this is an international organization. So it's not like you're in San Diego and you're going out to like you know Orange County or Los Angeles. I mean, did you go around the country? Did you go around the world? Like, how did that look? Um, well, initially, probably probably for the first couple of years, I mostly was in the United States because. Um, that was about at that time about seventy plus percent of our members. So I felt like that that was where I needed to spend the bulk of my time. But as time wore on, I also made significant trips to our to our licensees. Uh, at the time, we had a, about fourteen countries that were were involved, and and I would and I went and spent time with with them in their. You know, in their entirety, I you know spoke to member groups and spent time with chair groups, and I went to individual group meetings in uh, Australia and and in England and and Ireland and uh, in Argentina and and Chile and Malaysia and, and you know just basically all over the world. So, can you 
listen, and I, I get nothing for this, okay? You're not advertising. Nobody's ever, I've just become a huge fan of Vistage because I see the power that it creates for these members. Because again, I mean, it's like having a brain trust surrounding you, a board of directors without having to give out stock, and you can kind of just feed off the energy and the knowledge from each other. So just because I'm curious to what your answer would be to this, like if this was your chance to really tell my listeners what Vistage can do for them as a business leader, what would you say? Well, um, that first of all, uh, that we all need to be learning and growing. And that uh, what I have realized is that the most effective way I have learned and grown and have watched other people learn and grow, uh, particularly in the role of CEO, is to be sitting around the the table with a bunch of people who are not trying to sell you anything, not trying to influence you anything, just trying to be more successful themselves and help each other be more successful, that that process of, of, of having a peer group that can share not only their, um, their actions and intentions from subject matter experts such as yourself that come in and, and speak to them or um, the, the uh, other kinds of, you know, the, all the varied kinds of, of, of subject matter experts that come in, but also... Uh, each each month, each each member does what we call a host presentation. So you get intimately involved with with each person's strategy and performance, and what they're what they're doing well with, what they're struggling with, what their main issues are. And uh, through that whole process, it just logarithmically um, increases people's uh, effectiveness. In, in being, a, you know, a leader uh, and growing into the leader that they need to be for the next uh, growth segment that they are taking on, uh, getting better results uh, than they might otherwise get. Uh, you know, Visage has some amazing data that members grow at, at 2.5 times the percentage rate that they would typically grow if they're not members. We have, you know, very broad databases that show that members' results are better than non-members' results. Um, so, you know, being a better leader, making better decisions, getting better results, uh, just in a, in, in a very, you know, members will, will stay for an average of seven-plus years. Well, you wouldn't do that if you weren't really getting a substantive amount of value for spending one day a month uh, with, you know, the whole day in a learning environment with, with, a, with a group of people. So, Richard, it reminds me, one of my favorite stories, and I have to share it just because I thought it was, is they called the $15 million meeting, where, you know, a guy walks into the meeting to sell his company. Um, he's going to get 35, you know, get $35 million for it. That's going to be the issue in the afternoon. They've all looked over the numbers. They're they're you know ready to approve this the sale for this guy. You know just just as friends like you know the impartial spectator like I said before, and what happens? He literally you know the the group says hey we're, congratulations but this there's only one problem with your deal the company isn't worth thirty five million it's worth fifty and here's why and they literally showed him what to do so he goes into the meeting the next day and said hey listen I'm willing to sell you the company. But you know it's not worth thirty-five. It's worth fifty, and here's why. And the company said, "Good, done. We'll give you fifty million. <laughs> and he, 
you know, he, they called the $15 million meeting, but he wouldn't have known that if he didn't have this peer group of very intelligent people guiding him through that process. And I just, I, I laugh about how life can be and the opportunities that are missed and, and some that you can grab a hold of because of the people that are around you. So, um, now look, you've worked and observed and coached a lot of ex-executives from your life experience and perspective. What would you say would be the biggest stumbling block to an executive's ability to really, you know, or anyone really, their ability to be an effective and inspirational and empowering leader? Um, well, you know, it could be a lot of things. But if I had to pick one thing that I see more often than not, it's what I would just put under the umbrella of emotional intelligence. Um, ex- executives and business owners are typically quite good at a variety of skills, but they are often very limited in what I would want to call empathy, compassion, humility, uh, listening skills, um, qu- at the, the ability to ask good questions, uh, and 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 all of the all of the aspects of of understanding and and being able to be a a person with with a high quotient of emotional intelligence. So, Richard, this is why you and I get along so well, because I think that's the most important piece. That's what I speak on. And and now you're just trying to make me happy because, first of all, you bring up UCLA, my alma mater, and Pepperdine, where my kids go to school. And now you're talking about emotional intelligence. I mean, this is, this is fantastic. So, But, no, I, I, think, I think that that is the differentiator, right? You can be really, really smart. But if you can't get along, if you can't, you know, motivate, if you can't inspire, if you can't communicate with people, very hard to be the successful leader you know you can be. And, uh, you know, I, I've been fortunate to speak to some of your groups, um, in, including Million Dollar Baby, which, by the way, was featured on the cover of the August 2017 edition of Inc. Magazine. They were just on MSNBC um, as the crib. They're, they're, they make baby furniture and they were the crib manufacturers, the crib makers for the stars. I love that right, headline. Right, I mean, right. what a great company there with Daniel Fong and his son. I mean, just incredible. But you've heard me talk about CEO disease. And, uh, and I think, you know, like, for example, Million Dollar Baby does a great job of kind of keeping everybody grounded. But that's not always the case. Uh, and, and a matter of fact, uh, you know, I just released a new ebook about CEO disease. And for my listeners, as a reminder, you can get that at quigglegroup.com uh, backslash CEO disease. But look, we all have this tendency to contract CEO disease at one time or another on, on our leadership journey, myself included. So my question is, is threefold. Can you share with my listeners a time when you had maybe CEO disease, when you thought you, you, you knew it all or you were, you were the right person uh, to make all the decisions? Well, I, I mentioned it a minute ago, a few minutes ago, um, that my, my best example about that is uh, the time uh, when I was asked to invest in this leather goods business okay. that, I, that was totally out of my area of expertise, but I thought that I was quite honestly, uh, you know, Superman at the time and could do anything. And, uh, and so I, I borrowed a bunch of money and, and, and took the role of CEO of that business. And, uh, and, and, and really through uh, my being willing to share uh, the, the trauma that I was going through with that with my Vistage group, I, I walked away from, from a $60,000 investment that I had in that and, uh, and, and found myself very humbled by the experience. So then what do you do now to sequester CEO disease from creeping into your life? How do you keep your leadership immune system strong? Well, 
Um, first of all, I'm beyond the place where I, I'm focused on my own success these days, and and I'm and I'm fully energized and committed to being in, involved in the success of others. But in that role, I help others recognize that you know just because of you know what I say a lot of times about the role of being a chair is that I think the chairs that do the best work have seen some bad movies. And and so I having seen some bad movies in my own life, uh I'm I'm able to be much better at helping others recognize a tendency to the CEO disease and help them recognize their tendencies. And um so uh you know each case is its own and has and kind of the only similarity of these cases is my commit my commitment to listen to them ask questions that help them recognize the tendency to think they're invincible and uh where appropriate I help them with some issues that they can bring to their vistage group that that can get the vistage group to help them um get to a more balanced place yeah, so can you tell me a time in your life, and I know we talked about the one investment side, but is there another time when you weren't leading well, and and how did you know you weren't leading well during that process? Well, again, this is something that I alluded to earlier, but but one of my companies, Engineered Foam, was not meeting their objectives, and uh, and the leader that I'd hired to, to manage the business was not following through, and I, I basically tolerated his mediocre performance for entirely too long. Um, eventually, um, I did... Uh, change the leadership of that business, and kind of the result of all that is is that is that uh, I really gained an appreciation for being way more proactive in the hiring process, and and have been much better at gaining mutual agreement with goals and objectives, and have also been much, become much better with communication, feedback, and accountability. Wow, those are all great points, and I think we could probably spend a lot of time on each one of those. Um, I, I have two questions. Um, first, on leading those under you, what have you found to be the optimal level of direct reports to a CEO? Because you talked about kind of spreading out, making sure you were you were running on all cylinders. But how how many people do you think? Well, I, you know, I think the the answer I would give is kind of a classic answer. I would say four to six. But it, but it depends somewhat on the type of business. Uh, some businesses you can have more. Um, and key questions that I'd be asking are, are how much time do you need to commit to each person? Um, how, how independent can you train them to be? Um, you know, what are my, if I'm, the, if I'm the person that's considering this, what are my other responsibilities, managing up or involvement in other activities or businesses? Um, you know, what percentage of myself can I give to this? I mean, all this weighs in on that. But I think if you were to just take a generalization, I'd say four to six. Okay. No, I think I think that's good. That, that kind of matches what I, I was thinking and what I've heard before. But, I, you know, it's interesting because the second part of this question is is this. First of all, I want to talk to you about, like, how do you find good people real quickly and touch on that before I get to, like, how do you lead them and find the best leaders. But you you just mentioned a second ago that you you know you changed your hiring process. What did you mean by that? What did you do differently? Well, um, you, you know, I be I, I became uh, 
you know, I, I don't know that I would have said it this way then, but the way I can now see it is that over the years, I've become a real student of, of testing devices. Um, and I've used a whole host of them through the years. And it's not as though I think they're the be-all and the end-all. They don't tell you a lot of times who can, who can make it in a job but they can give you some big, big red flags about how people have might have a huge tendency to not make it, and so I have, you know, I have I do that. Do you recommend? I also okay. I also have been way more diligent in doing background checks. You know, finding people I can talk to that are that will in fact give me the straight scoop about people, um, and I and I'm also gotten way better in my interviewing skills, uh, doing what I would call behavioral interviews, you know, giving, you know, giving people questions about that, that they have to answer about, give me an example of when you have, you know, when you were exposed or, or had to, to deal with this kind of a situation. And um, you get people out of normal interviewing pro- processes, you can learn a lot too. Is there any, do you recommend any one particular testing device now? Well, the ones that I the one I see the most uh, that actually is kind of ubiquitous, it's available, is there's there's a um, uh, there's a, a one that's called the PI that's called the predictive index, and there's another one called the CI which is the culture index. They're very similar to one another, um, and I've and I have had experience with both of them, and uh, and I think they both have you know have a lot to say in a positive way. I appreciate that. I will definitely look those up and make sure I'm sure my listeners will as well. Describe the one trait. If you if you had to say one trait that you look for in your top people, what would it be? Well, I think for me, um, it's authenticity. Um, and the way I think about authenticity is is willing to show up being wrong, willing to show blind spots, willing to also give very direct feedback to me. Um, I'm looking for people who will give me bad news. Um, you know, I, I, I believe with authenticity that I, that I end up getting mutual trust and respect, and I think it's, it's a very basic foundation for having a positive working relationship and, and positive team dynamics. So if you had to say, like, what one of your own personal, you know, character traits was that is your biggest asset... Is is maybe at times it may be your biggest liability. Also, how do you balance that? Well, I think for me, um, I'm a very confident leader. Um, I'm an optimist. I, you know, I'm a glass half full guy, and I generally see the best in the people in people, and I see the best in situations. Uh, I think it really develops loyalty and trust in those that work for me, but it can also sometimes be a big liability. You know, uh, and and it shows up most often for me in a negative way by people who are intimidated by me, and so I've learned to be much a much better listener and question asker uh, to to really work on dispelling anyone feeling intimidated. And I'm not saying this for you. I'm saying this in general. It's funny because when I talk about successful traits and when I'm speaking, 
and, and confidence comes up, I say, and not cockiness, and there's a difference, isn't there? Right. I mean, you want a confidence, somebody who believes in what they're doing, but but also as somebody who is a, you know, has the realization that, hey, I'm not going to be right all the time, <laughs> that I'm gonna, the mistakes can be made, and how do we learn from them and move forward? So from a personal perspective, and I'm, I'm always so curious, like, what do you spend your time thinking about? What do I spend my time thinking about? Um, well, I'm at a point in my life um, where, um, you know, I, 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 there, there's kind of, there was a fellow who was a mentor of mine um, who died a few years ago at the, at the ripe young age of 99. And, and two months before he died, he was running group meetings for Vistage. Um, and, and he and I were really good friends. And, um, he said to me one time, he said, Richard, he said, there's something that you need to learn. And that is that you don't grow old. You become old when you quit growing. So I, I feel like that's why when I stepped away from the headquarters in 2011, I really decided that what I was wanted to be focused on was 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 having relevance um, and and for me that showed up in in this whole idea of going back to, to chairing groups where I can in fact help other people be successful and in so doing continue growing myself and so I would say what do I tend to think about? I tend to think about. I tend to read books. I tend to, to, to be connected to things that will help me grow and help me be relevant and help me help others be successful. So think about the impact he had on your life, because you know I, I talk about how thoughts are the biggest and best predictor of you know who we are and how we behave. And so when I asked that question, like, you know, what do you spend your time thinking about, that impacted you so much that you changed your life to adapt to that, to make sure that you were constantly learning, constantly challenging yourself to, to be the best that you can be. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, that's incredible. So, you know, looking back, and this is just one of my favorite just kind of quick draw questions, but I'm just curious to what, what one piece of advice would you give to your 20-year-old self and why? Well, um, I, I would advise myself to at 20 years of age uh, to be a more serious student. Um, I, when I think back about myself, I did not take advantage of many learning opportunities I could have had in my undergraduate experience. Um, and, uh, and because I have spent virtually all my life being a student, I really realized that I missed out on some things along that time. That who knows how they might have impacted me, but that's that's what I would have said to myself. I thought it was great. I was interviewing somebody the other day, and I asked this question. You know what he said? I love this. He said, "It wouldn't matter. I wouldn't listen to myself," <laughs> which I just thought that that is a good answer. Because yeah, he said I knew everything at that age, and I just thought that was great. So you know, so often in life as leaders, we are you know we're just going, 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 and you got family and then the family wants vacations and they want time and you got work and you got deadlines and if you're publicly traded you've got you know stockholders and everything and we're just spread so thin what is your advice to leaders to stay focused and effective well um it's really you know there's there's no uh, silver bullet here but i would say 
you know, what I generally say to people is only commit to tackle the things that you can do. You know, only only commit to the things that you yourself can tackle and only you can do. Delegate everything else. And And then on the other side of the coin, be sure to commit to tackle and stay focused on those relationships that you care about most. And that leads directly into my next question because – I mean, give give you credit. You've been married for nearly 50 years. You have three daughters, seven grandchildren. How have you maintained that presence in, in their lives? What What is your strategy to lead effectively at home and at work? Well, first of all, um, I've, I've learned to only give advice when asked. <laughs> um, and I, you know, I've got plenty of scars that got me to that place, but, but, um, um, I have found that that a whole lot happens when my kids or grandkids ask me about things that they're struggling with or opportunities that they're considering. And in those kinds of cases, we can have really rich conversations that's as much as anything about me listening and asking questions and occasionally interspersing personal experiences that that uh, could be relevant. So I would argue that that's really good for all of my listeners to listen to because typically we're probably – A-type personalities, we have a solution for everybody's problem, and not just one, but 343 or so. And so sometimes it's just waiting to be asked or just listening when when somebody needs to vent or, um, you know, that becomes a a very important part of the communication process. So I appreciate that advice for me as well, personally. Um, So you you brought up your grandkids and them coming to you. What's the best business or life advice that you'd give your kids or grandkids? Um, Well, again... I, I, you know, I just don't, I, I, I really feel like it's, uh, I, I really work, I've learned to work hard at not just offering advice, but when they come to me, I, like, for example, um, one of my grandkids is a junior in high school, and uh, he happens to be a really, really talented lacrosse player, and uh, and he was being recruited by virtually any place that was any good at lacrosse was recruiting him. And so I had a conversation with him, and I said, so Alex, what's going to, you know, what is it that's going to help you make this decision? And, and he said, well, he says, I'm trying to decide whether I want to be a lacrosse player that's a student or a student that's a lacrosse player. And so that led to a really rich conversation about, you know, what, you know, what schools might, might be his best choice. Anyway, long story short is uh, he made the decision to go to Princeton. And, uh, um, and it was not because Princeton has the absolute best lacrosse program, but because for what he's interested in doing, he felt like it was his best opportunity. Yeah, and I'm sure that conversation you had with him was impactful in his life. And so... It's great that we can do that sometimes with the family and friends and everyone around us. Uh, I, you know, I want to end with this because you've heard me ask others this question before, and uh, I did it in the meeting. But Richard, what do you want your legacy to be? In, in, in your wildest fantasy, how would you want to be described? Well, you know, specifically, the way I heard you ask the question in the in the meeting was, "How do I want my kids to describe me to their grandchildren, to their children?" Yes. And uh, and and I, you know, I've actually thought about that quite a bit, 
And uh, and I think really what I want them to say is, Dad was always there for me, always interested in me, and always wanted me to be the best me. Wow. Yeah, and and you know what? And I I want my listeners to really let that sink in for a second because it's not the version we want them to be of them. You know what I mean? It's not. And and by the way, to to be present was always there for me. I mean, that takes a lot of time over a lifetime yep. to get somebody to say that about you. It's an investment of time. And I always I, I ask these people when you know these CEOs when I'm speaking, I'm, I'm like, can you imagine if we spent a fraction of the time having meetings and strategy meetings and putting out charts and everything for our kids and our families where everybody could be like we do our companies? And so I, I love that you said that, and and I just can't thank you enough for for um, you know talking with me today, for giving us great lessons in leadership. Uh, for showing us how we can empower ourselves and others to be the best leaders that they can be. So, Richard, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it, and I wish you the best success moving forward. Thanks, Dan. Same with you. Appreciate the opportunity. Remember, you can get a free copy of my leadership ebook about CEO disease at quigglegroup.com forward slash CEO disease. As a reminder, if you want to learn more about Richard to get a recap of this episode of Garage to Goliath, you can get the show notes at quigglegroup.com forward slash 036. Also, don't just listen to the show. Subscribe in iTunes at quigglegroup.com forward slash iTunes. Subscribing helps others find the show. And please leave an honest review. Your reviews help make me better as a host and help make this podcast better for you. And share with friends. I'd be very thankful if you'd share this podcast with others on social media. Or send a quick email or text about the show to another leader you think would enjoy the podcast and that it would encourage them on their leadership journey. Thanks.